As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there. Welcome to the show. It's brought to you by The Athletic, along with us from The Square Ball. Dan here from The Square Ball, along with Michael and Phil from The Athletic as well, Phil Hay, um, we're ahead of Javi Gracia's press conference this week, aren't we? Because you've got other more pressing uh, matters to attend to in the meantime. Yes, the carriage works was the excuse last week. Um, I don't want to bore people with, with this week's, but um, but yes, Gracia will be up in about two hours' time where he's hopefully going to confirm in-depth team news, including the return of Rodrigo. Let's hope. Let's hope so. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod if you want to um, take advantage of the current offer as well to read what Phil has to say about Leeds United and participate in the match day discussions as well before and after the games. We'll be looking ahead to the game against Brighton in due course in this show. Where do you want to start today then, Phil? Well, I suggested to you that we go at either Rodrigo or season tickets and maybe season tickets is the way to go because there is always a lot of chat around them. 10% rise this week, pretty topical. Yeah, I mean, we've said our bit over on our show, so we probably don't need to um, need to repeat that excessively. But what, what do you make of it, given the timing and all that? And the, the fact that the club acknowledged it within their, their publications as well. I'm always a little bit wary of talking about season ticket prices, not because it's a problem to upset the club, but because I don't buy one. Um, I don't need one to get in the ground. It doesn't cost me any money. So I'd never want to tell anybody what to think about how much they should be paying or whether they should be paying at all. 10% rise uh, was the headline figure. Leeds said in their release that it's the second rise in 12 years, which is factually correct. It's also the second 10% rise in two years. So back-to-back this season and last season, or at least for this season and, and the season coming up, supporters have been paying more for, for general admission tickets. I think the common sense aspect of this, first of all, is that prices are going up everywhere for everything at the moment. I did a piece on this for Wednesday And I was talking about the fact that a couple of weeks ago, I had an email from the mobile network who serviced my mobile phone saying your bills will be going up by 14%. And 10% of that was the consumer price index. Yeah. Plus an extra 4%, which just seemed to be because they were adding an extra 4%. So there was this little line in the email which said, you know, you're now entitled to cancel your contract if you want, but please don't because we'd much rather have your money. The thing is, I have no loyalty to... uh, phone network and I can't find it in me to be loyal to a particular phone network. Somebody else will be cheaper, so I'll leave them and I'll I'll find another one. But it got me thinking about the the kind of captive audiences that football clubs have and also the fact that at the moment 
there probably isn't a club or many clubs with a more captive audience than Leeds United because not only are season tickets capped and sold to that cap at Ellen Road, there's also a massive waiting list, which is up at 22,000. And just with regards to the waiting list, a few people said to me after reading that piece and, and seeing a few of my tweets, if we get relegated, if we go down, you know, if the football doesn't improve, that waiting list will disappear pretty quickly. I don't think it will because it's already extremely big, so it'll take a long time to chip away at 22,000. But also, over the years, I've spoken to people who gave up season tickets just before Bielsa became head coach, were either change of circumstances or were, I think, quite understandably fed up with the football, fed up with the, the troll through the EFL, which looked like it was never going to end, and massively regretted the fact that they had because suddenly that waiting list and, and the surge for season tickets generated really rapidly on Bielsa's watch for obvious reasons. And it became nigh on impossible to get a ticket or it became very difficult. And also you start to realise that if you're a long way down the waiting list, you're never going to get it back. Or realistically, it's going to take ages to get it back. I mean, 22,000 on it. Leeds last year had renewals of over 90%. I think it was closer to 95%. So you're talking about a tiny chip, chip, chip away at that. And yes, I think if the club were to go down, then it will reduce. But I don't think it will reduce in such numbers that it makes it easy easy to get one or easy to expect to get a season ticket. So the long and short of that is that when you get a an email or the club get in touch to say it's renewals time, prices are going up by 10% and bear in mind that money is tight for a lot of people at the moment. The fact that that waiting list exists in the background means that you have a dilemma. You either pay up or you accept that you're going to lose your seat for a long, long time. And obviously there is stadium development in the background that's kind of planned by 49ers Enterprises, but that is still all on paper. You know, it isn't, it isn't done at the moment. So it is, I think, one of those scenarios that leaves you thinking, and this is no newsflash, but without a doubt, Leeds need a bigger stadium. And I think long term, that will be the case no matter what happens this season. But also another thing arising from it, I'm pretty sure you guys will chip in on this, is that the facilities are desperately in need of an upgrade in, in a lot of Ellen Road. And I, I love how raw and edgy Ellen Road is. I'll miss the kind of old school feel to it. But I think to use that horrible phrase, match day experience, you probably get away from in the stands watching what's on the pitch and the atmosphere. You know, in the concourses and everything else, you undoubtedly get better match day experiences at a lot of Premier League grounds. The evidence for this is, is sort of purely anecdotal from us, isn't it? I mean, I'm over in the East and the offering downstairs seems to have improved. There are, you know, more food concessions people seem to be getting served a little bit quicker, but I know that's not the case for every part of the ground. And the, there are parts of the ground that are simply just too small and underserved. And, you know, do you run into problems of staff training as well? The ability to get pints ready ahead of halftime, maybe that kind of thing. Cause you know, people want to go to football sort of in a very general sense, just to have a meet up with your mates, have a pint, watch the football. And, and it often feels like the, the sort of have a pint and a pie thing is, is missing, isn't it? I feel like as well, some of the, supporter experience stuff has been actually taken away in recent years because understandably I suppose the corporate areas are, are the ones that bring in the money but that means the pavilion is now gone as a place to drink pre-game which was somewhere somewhere that held you know a couple of thousand people Ken would no doubt brag to us how many it would hold if he was if he was still around because he was so proud of it but what the biggest between Newcastle and Manchester <laughs> that was the one yeah that was the one so like that has that has gone and the cop bar is still. I mean, I've not been in it in quite some time, admittedly, but it's not changed. I've seen. I've seen it. It's the same as it has always been, essentially. And I know there's a limited amount you can do with a space of that size and of that setup. 
but it just feels like they've not tried. The ground, you would say it's stuck in the early 2000s, really, isn't it? In that period before stadium development started to become rife across the division and, and possibly parts of it are stuck you know, even further back than that. And you can't deny that part of the reason for that is that the long stretch in the championship in League One meant that money was just not being channeled into that at all. In the same way as money wasn't put aside in 2009 to buy back Thorpe Arch, Okay, there have been changes to Ellen Road, the East Stand, particularly when when Bates was chairman. But and you know, little things like the press box has been upgraded, the media room has been upgraded. But those are Premier League requirements. You know, they they have to be done. A lot of the West Stand is predominantly, as I remember it being when I first started covering the club almost almost twenty years ago. People know of um, the author around here, John Howe. He used to joke about the railway sleepers that sat on that building outside the West Stand for years and years and years and. I remember tweeting him back with a photo of a telephone from generously the 1990s, but looked like it might have been the back end of the 1980s that floated around the old press box for years and years. It does need a, a, a huge upgrade. And evidently that upgrade isn't, I, I think it would be pretty unrealistic to have expected it to, you know, a, a, a huge major upgrade to have come over the past four or five years. But I do hear a lot of people say that the, the facilities and the, the match day experience is not what it should be for the, the money that you're paying. But of course, you can't play the market with football, can you? Because you don't bounce. Well, most people don't bounce from one club to another. Your club is your club. And if you want to go and watch them, you have to pay the money and you have to accept the, the stadium as it comes. I think as well, something that, that was very much on my mind was the fact that when season ticket prices go up, particularly in the Premier League, it's hard not to reflect on the amount of money that clubs draw in every single year. So Leeds last recorded income, according to their accounts, and this was for the season after promotion, was £171 million. But of course, clubs burn most of the money on player wages and transfer fees. If you, you know, Leeds spent almost £110 million of that cash on, on the wage bill before transfer fees. And if you go back to the last season in the Championship when they got promoted... The wages to, to turnover ratio was more than there was more than hundred percent of turnover spent on wages. That's where the cash goes, and I guess to an extent, all of us are a bit guilty of encouraging that, aren't we? Everybody wants to see, and, and I'm no different. You know, everybody wants to see recruitment and weaknesses in a team addressed, which usually means spending money, and it makes you feel. I think a lot of us think about this a lot of the time now. It makes you feel like football really does need a little bit of a reset, and maybe not a little bit of a reset. Moscow over on our podcast made exactly this point, didn't he, this week, that it feels like there's this inflationary bubble that just keeps growing and growing and growing. And at some point, it's going to have to reach some sort of limit, but it's it's hard to know exactly where. But then the problem is then stack it up against the quality of the product. And I think it's specifically in, exa- uh, in terms of the example that we've seen at Leeds this year, which, you know, we're, we're gurgling around the plug hole, for God's sake. You know, it's, it's not a good product and the referees are ruining it. The VAR is ruining it. You struggle so much when you spend your time in the Premier League unless you are you know, backed by the wealth of a nation state. It's it's hard to love a lot of it, isn't it? Particularly, yeah. you know, you see, and you see the players who are hoovering up all the money, falling down and rolling around to try and gain an advantage in the game. And, and this, I know everybody gets misty-eyed about what football was like when they were growing up. Everybody does, don't they? It's just, it's just part of well, the, that, the well, human see, condition. That, that's what I like about Ellen Road and it's what I liked about going to Goodison Park, take the game out of the equation because I didn't enjoy that. But it feels like, for, and, and this is only personal experience, but it feels like the, the football and the, the atmospheres, the, the kind of aesthetics that you were used to when I was a kind of teenager growing up in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. So I relate to that very much so 
far more, I think, than I do to your your Super Bowls like Tottenham, which is a beautiful stadium and the facilities are incredibly impressive. The the press rooms like the Google, you know, Google offices when you, you the, go into the campus. It. Yeah, it's, it, it's it's extraordinary, but it's it, it doesn't always feel very real, you know. The, the counter argument to the standard of football, um, because a few people said to me, I can't believe we're paying more given how bad the football's been this season, or how poor the performances have been or the results this season, is that it's difficult to expect clubs within reason. Obviously, if a club gets relegated, you expect, as Leeds are going to do, they're not going to enforce the 10% increase. If they do go down, you expect there to be some concession made for the fact that you're in a lower league. But I think in the same league, it's hard to expect a club to to let the prices ebb and flow with individual results. And I was making the point in the piece on Wednesday that through Bielsa's first three years, which I think are probably the best football any of us have seen, you know, give or take, the prices didn't move at all. They were frozen. So it wasn't as if the prices increased with the quality of the football at that point. And and by the same token, I don't think I'd expect the, the prices to decrease on the basis of poor Premier League seasons, which this one has been and last one, the last one was as well. But so I suspect that the argument about the facilities and, and what you're getting is probably stronger on that front. But you're right. I mean, we seem to get into this quite regularly. You know, the the question of what what is it that you're looking for from Premier League football? And actually these days, what is it that you're looking for from football? Because you, you're talking about being nostalgic and misty-eyed and everything. But the game financially has changed so much over the past 20 years, almost to an unrecognisable degree in some respects. And I'm not necessarily sure it's changed for the better. It is worth framing that around the historical context, though. And you made this point on our show this week, Michael, that, you know, Ken Bates um, had us, or some people, paying 700 quid. Oh, yeah, no argument with that. 700 quid in the West Stand more than 10 years ago. So, um, as you were saying, Michael, basically, the the football has kind of caught up with the prices eventually. Yes, 726 always sticks in my head. And hopefully I've got that right, otherwise it doesn't stick in my head very well. But that was the figure, that famous year infamous year where the season ticket prices dropped and everybody it was just jaws on the ground because suddenly in a division that you know standard football was not absolutely great and also given the, the prices that existed already and Bates argument was that they had to go up they'd been at too too low a level but the rise was incredibly steep and then you had a situation where there were no concessions in the west stand so if you were sitting in the west stand with a child it was going to cost you 726 quid and it was going to cost them 726 quid and okay there were family areas and this that and the other but I think I look back at that as a really extreme example and even now can't quite believe actually how much people were being asked to pay I looked back actually because we I know we covered it in the magazine at the time the one thing that Bates did as well for which has improved massively now all children were in the same category so whether you're not you're taking a four-year-old or a 15-year-old it was 240 quid was the cheapest you could get a kid in for which Mm. as anyone who has children will know like a six-year-old has no attention span for 90 minutes of football. So you could look at it and go, am I going to get 240 quid of value out of this? Probably not. So that has improved a lot. And the prices overall, when you compare across the Premier League, they look sort of fine. Yeah, like, I, think it's, it's, I think that's it's very much, fair to say. It's yeah. very much in mid-table. But I think the thing is, it's not for us to to justify it in those terms, is it? As you were saying, it feels like it still feels like a lot of money and you can compare it to ticket prices of the early 90s and go, well, why is it so much more? There's, there's, they're part of the almost the myth of the Premier League and of big stadiums with corporate areas and people paying a fortune was that for an average person, the price doesn't have to go up because there's now all this new money. But actually all that new money gets burned away so rapidly that everyone needs to pay more. You look at the top of the, the, top of the table for 
Premier League ticket prices and at the top Spurs and Arsenal yeah. both people in relatively new stadiums there's a graphic with, on the athletic to that extent yeah. wasn't there yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with huge corporate areas but it doesn't make it doesn't make it better for anyone else. It just means that everyone, it just bumps the price up for everybody. Well, to go back to what we were talking about there, is it is it, is it that this is just really about timing as much as anything and the fact that Leeds United have been a bit crap for a couple of years? And well, it, people, doesn't, it doesn't help. Does no, it? it's, no, it's hard if, to, if we were ninth, people would go, all right, fine. <laughs> I, it, I, I actually think it's less club specific, this whole debate, and it's more a matter of accessibility. And further down the line, is football going to continue being accessible to the average person, as in a, a, a you know an actual match-going event. And this is only my personal view, and I don't mean this about the clubs, because I genuinely think the clubs do value the crowds and understand the point of an atmosphere and, and the need for an atmosphere. But I don't think a lot of the major stakeholders in world football now are remotely interested in the crowds. I don't think they are. I thought that during the World Cup, as I was looking at Various various stadiums in Qatar that were half empty during the games. That's not where the money is. Those, ticket, you, those stadiums you, are sold out, Phil. I, I, saw, the, I right. saw the official attendance. That's right. It's you know it's not an insignificant amount of money that you get, but it's nothing in comparison to the money you get from TV deals. And that that's just driving everything. And and it feels to me as if we're on a road to saying, yeah, football will be accessible to everybody. You've just got to watch on the telly yeah. on a subscription. Yeah, if, yeah you, well. if you can afford it. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, what's many. Young people, particularly now, you know, thinking like kids today who grow up playing FIFA and things like that. Football is a video game. It's a TV program. It's not. A, it's not a match-going experience. I, is I it? don't. I don't think that's true of the kids who get taken to football. I think. No, I think so, so, so many though that, that the FIFA generation who don't go necessarily. Yeah. Like you know, I think about my my lad who's eleven now and he'll play FIFA with his mates and they all own their replica shirts for various clubs and stuff and. Actually, so few of them have ever set foot inside a football stadium. But that's the, that's the point, whereas yours has. And do you think further down the line, assuming the waiting list isn't still at 22,000, do you think he will try and get a season ticket? Yeah, I mean, he, he, yeah, it's one of those things. I don't know. He's, he Are you going to bully him into it? He doesn't seem to have fully bought into it, but it's like if my dad inflicted the burden on me, then he should have it as well, is what I think. I was just going to ask, actually, is this as much to do with a clash of ideas as it is anything else, in the sense that our attachment to the club is... It's emotional, isn't it, as, as football fans? You kind of kid yourself that it's that it's not a transactional thing at any point. You know, it's based, based on love and hope and optimism and all those sorts of things until that time that the actual transaction, the genuine transaction needs to take place once a year when the renewals come out and you go, all right, that's how much I'm paying for this, is it? Because to, yeah. to me, it, represents, yeah, it, it, just, uh, it just represents an ebb and flow of misery it, and joy. It sort of has to be transactional sometimes, yeah. otherwise you're letting people in for free. And I'll say it again, th- there's no way in which all of our costs and utility bills and everything else kind of gone up without the clubs going up as well and even though you know you, you might sort of laugh at that given the amount of money that Premier League clubs have if you think of it pro rata for how much they would have been paying initially you'd, you'd be talking hefty hefty rises I think if you go back to the argument about wages and transfer fees there are ways in which money could be found to pay for that and not spent on other things but then there's a culture in football of which we are part where everybody is banging the drum for signing more players, signing better players, trying to improve, trying to chase this, that and the other. I just, I constantly think these days that the value placed by the game at large on match-going fans is far, far lower than it should be. And somebody made a great point, actually, when the Premier League were talking about the green travel weekend and, you know, about the importance of environmental travel. And somebody replied to them and said, well, how about staging more games at times where it's actually easy to get there? stage more games at points where people can use public transport 
as opposed to Monday night on the south coast where you you have no chance of getting back if you're trying to go by train or whatever else. It's simple, but of course, won't happen because of TV. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. You touched on the Bielsa era there before, Phil, when we were talking about price increases or lack thereof. We wanted to talk in this bit about uh, a happier time at Ellen Road. It's all got a little bit stressful recently, hasn't it? It's um, it's three years this week since Luke Ayling crashed in that volley, which we, we may have spoken about that one before, I think, um, through misty eyes. But it's it's worth revisiting and maybe looking at the the journey Leeds have gone on since, because that was a fine day, wasn't it? What, what was your favourite goal of the Bielsa era? I've, I've kind of been pondering this after watch because the the ailing goal is fantastic, and I don't just mean the the hit, like the the kind of. I've actually written about it for um, for Friday, and I was saying in it, it's like it's like Colin Jackson hurdling, and then it's like the hit of a baseball bat off the off the bar. So you look at the finish, and the finish is absolutely majestic, but the build up is just like the build up is just typical of that season and typical of that era. So I start to think. What was the best goal? Was it Hernandez at Swansea? Was it Hernandez yeah. against West Brom? Well, was Hernandez, it Ailing? Hernandez at Swansea wasn't a great goal in the sense that the finish was a little bit scuffed because the ball had gone behind him. But he picked that one out just perfectly for the corner. The only place it would have worked. Again, the build-up was fantastic, and, well, though. You, yeah. took, you took the words out of my mouth. Yeah, I was going to say, that build-up was about as near as you're ever going to get to a Bielsa archetypal goal in terms of building up. Ailing was the one who started it at the back, and he's the one who makes it up towards the byline, doesn't he? In the and, and also, in the last minute of the game, when everybody should be absolutely shattered and Just, should not have a... Exactly. You know, that, that, inter- that interchange of passes out on the right-hand side that involved um, Costa, and I think, uh, who else was involved in it? Was it was Clink? I think Clink yeah. was, Clink was yeah. out there as well, Just, yeah. Just perfect. But the one at Hull was good as well, mm. That um, where they dug it out of the, the left-back corner. But predominantly, I think my favourite would be Pablo to Dallas at Stoke. That through ball. That was just, just oh, exquisite, it, wasn't it? It's, it's, there's something beautiful about passes and goals where there's just enough on it. Yeah. It's like a chip where that just it almost bounces on the line and just trickles in. You think he used to, oh, he used to do perfect. that all the time. We should do a show on Pablo's through balls and reverse passes. There was this was pre Bielsa, but there is the most fantastic one to do Cara in what must be the Gary Monk season. I think it was against Burton at Ellen Road and. Hernandez is wide on the left touchline as Leeds are attacking, but he's either in his own half or he's he's by the halfway line. And he just positions this ball beautifully. And people were slightly unkind in the... I, I tweeted that during the, the pandemic. People were slightly unkind to Ducara, who wasn't lightning quick and getting onto it, but did um, did win a penalty. But yeah, no, the the, the Stoke one was was beautiful. The 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 goal against West Brom. Uh, I, what we did with the, the ailing go um, for the, the piece that we've published um, today if you're listening Friday was went back and watched the footage of it really closely to see what was going on and I noticed that behind the goal 
right behind the net in the front row, there was somebody with a broken arm um, who was celebrating that as it as it went in or trying to celebrate it. And even though it was a different season, I like to convince myself that he'd, bro- he'd broken that during the celebrations of Pablo's 12-second finish against West Brom. But the, the thing about the ailing goal is that it's, it's the way it's created. You've got Dallas on the left in deep area into Clique, who plays this kind of telepathic back heel to Pablo Hernandez. And obviously, like, Hernandez just had telepathic everything. So he plays a ball to Harrison without really looking, kind of knows that Harrison is running from about 25 yards behind him. And Huddersfield are just absolutely clueless when it comes to knowing where to position themselves and how to preempt this. And Ailing's kind of trotting up the other side of the field. Carlin Grant's motioning for people to mark nobody out on the right. He kind of glances behind him, but he looks in the wrong direction. So he doesn't actually realise that Ailing's there until Harrison crosses and it suddenly dawns on Grant that everybody's starting to scramble and something's going on. And the funny thing about Ailing was that obviously he was actually in a goal scoring run at that point, but he's not a goal scorer and he never, ever scored goals like that. But it just so happened that the day before in training, he'd scored an identical goal. Cross from the left, volley like that, smashed it in. And obviously he realised in telling that story that people were going to call bullshit on it. You know, people were going to say, no, he didn't. Except there was a video of it. There was a video taken, um, which was um, released afterwards to, to show that he had. And, and he sort of said, you know, kind of, I'd never scored a goal like that before. Probably never scored a goal like that again. Um, but managed to do it twice in, in two days. And early in the game, goal like that, it's, it's like like Hernandez is against West Brom. It's just the best. Leeds was like a freight train at that moment, wasn't it? Just yeah. as a club, it was there. That was the... Was that the fifth win on the bounce just pre-pandemic and no goals conceded? And in that, it was in that spell where Ayling got three goals. I mean, he's, he's, yeah. he's only scored, has he scored seven or eight for us, I think, in his entire time here? It's not yeah. really oh, not in, very in many. His, in his career as well, he hadn't scored many and he'd been at Bristol City for a long time. It didn't say on the tin when he came in, you'll, you'll get goals from him and, and certainly not goals like that. Although, you know, I think in a lot of ways he's just broken ceiling after ceiling, isn't he? And he, like 200 grand from Bristol City goes down as... Probably one of the best signings Leeds have ever made. Pound, pound for pound. Yeah, 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 I mean, it's 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 incredible. Um, this, is, this is the podcast equivalent of sticking on the VHS of like Race for the Title or something when things aren't, <laughs> when, when things aren't going great. You just, 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 just talk about living, something nice. <laughs> to be fair, there is, there is a real a real world example of this in that I sat and watched that and I've said it over on our show. Like it's the, There's a 27 minute video of every goal in the promotion season and I sat and watched it a couple of weeks back. How good are they? How oh, good are they? Just, there's so many good made, goals. But it, it made me feel really happy to have lived through something so beautiful. And that's what it was. It kind of transcended football and then it strayed into areas of beauty, which is what you're always sort of hoping for in life, aren't you? And, uh, and trying to find in your football where you just, where it takes your breath away and you go, oh God, that was just, it's just, just got that otherworldly quality. But then I felt a little bit sad as well because we were still mired in Red Bull football, I think at the point when I watched it and I was thinking, I know what they're trying to do, but I just I just can't love it in the same way. Not not the managers managers I'm talking about here, but the style of football. When I saw this beautiful flowing tapestry of a goal going at at Stoke, with you know Pablo just measured it perfectly, and you, you could see there's a half second where the keeper thinks, "Do I go for that? I'm not going to get it." And then you see Dallas get onto it and just stroke it home, and it's like it's a work of art. It's just ah, oh, well, Huddersfield away, Hernandez's goal there, um, yeah. close range finish, but the actual attack. I always say this. The phenomenally good counter-attacking team leads just didn't do it much because you know it wasn't their style but some people do get a bit sick of revisiting the past but I, I feel as if goals like that not like us because we're season, Leeds United well, fans absolutely but you know <laughs> I, mean, I imagine probably even some Leeds fans from time to time get you know sick of, of revisiting listening to this hearing us revisit these this type of stuff but I mean there's a, a mural up on 
Whitehall Road of the ailing goal. It's done by the bully Banksy, Andy McVeigh. And it's kind of a moment that's absolutely worthy of that, I think. And I loved, I loved just watching. It's quite good fun to do this. 20, 30 seconds of a goal. Watch really closely and see the people who are still scrambling into the ground. There's a guy going up the steps as Harrison goes down the left in the east stand, which makes you think, did he actually see the goal? Or did he have to wait until the EFL highlights on whichever channel it was that night? And you've got everybody around you going, that's one of the best goals I've ever seen. And you're thinking, what? <laughs> never, never, even, never even saw it. And then there's a kind of classic Berardi clothesline on Ailing. As he, Ailing slides by the West Ham with his hair down. He's doing the air guitar. And he just gets poleaxed by Berardi who slides in, in, I guess in the spirit of the way he tried to strangle Bamford down at Swansea after that. Hernandez go. There are such good times. I mean, I was going to say life was wonderful. Life wasn't wonderful because obviously the, the COVID pandemic was about to kick in and, and you know, that was about to bite in a far bigger way than, than just in, in football. Um, but, but that that's what but, made the be- the football more beautiful as well because it was such a counterpoint to what was going on in the real world. Particularly, you know, we came back and obviously the wobble was there against Cardiff. But, I mean, some of the, uh, the football th- we played after we came back was amazing as I well. I think it's also what made that goal beautiful because, you, you know, that was like the last time, wasn't it, where everything was as normal as it had been then. And it's been a really, really slow grind getting back to that sort of point. Even stadiums filling up again took took a long time. And you're right about Leeds going like a freight train. They'd had that bad wobble. They'd had that really nervous night at Brentford when actually they delivered a really good performance and were unlucky not to win on, on the back of the, the defeat at Forest. Five wins on the bounce. It felt as if they were starting to, starting to cruise towards it at that point. And I know they got beat at, at Cardiff, but... I really did come back into that spell after that with total confidence that they were going to do it. I am, um, you know, talking about football being about moments. I like watching the the Swansea goal for that and the angle that was captured in the stand. So you can see all the subs spilling down over the advertising hoardings. That's what Berardi did. He was yeah. sat right in front of us. And um, as soon as the goal went in, he was straight down the steps and over to see who he could murder. And it's where you see Melier cover the length of a football pitch in about three seconds uh-huh. flat, just charges up the foot. But it's like, when you watch it as a whole, like almost as a, as a as a single entity, it's like a swarm of bees that are attacking. You know, somebody's attacked the nest, so they're all kind of going towards it. Or there's a bit of food has landed near the nest and all the ants are swarming towards it. It was just, it's an, an amazing thing. It was like a theatre show that moment and that that's what I mean actually you with the goals you tend to just focus on the finish itself you know and the, the actual moment and, and the quality of it but but round about I mean to, to give you a great non-Leeds example the, the Dini goal against Leicester for Watford in the playoffs the little side shows in that like um, Zola running on the pitch and then losing his footing and falling over <laughs> on his face and everything and the, the, the flow of it I think if you if you follow Watford, that's probably the greatest goal you've ever seen. I think, isn't it, or the greatest moment you've ever ever experienced? And we we um, helped them achieve that, didn't we, by beating them in the uh, the game? Prior. Yeah, that ridiculous game that finished with about twenty five minutes of injury time, and Watford used three goalkeepers, and McCormack scored right at the end. Yeah, that 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 binned them into the playoffs. So you welcome Watford? Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> despite defeat in the final. Yeah, we've, we've helped them out a few times across the years, haven't we, Watford? But let's not. <laughs> Let's not get into that. And that's the, one of the things, isn't it? That even though this season has been a, an absolute bin fire. Um, bin fire. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, look, I'm, I'm sorry, I've, I've got all the results in front of me on Wikipedia and Wikipedia colour codes the game. So if you win, it's green. If you drew, it's yellow. And if you lose, it's red. I'm seeing just so much red. Yes. Just, just not enough green. But if we get to the end of this and we survive, there will still be some great moments to remember from 
this season as well, won't they? I'm thinking, you know, the 4-3 at home to Bournemouth in what a moment. That was the last minute winner at, at Liverpool. Chelsea in general was, was quite good when the home game. I think the club have definitely moved from living the dream as they absolutely were. And I don't mean in a Ridsdale sense, I mean in an actual sense, to being back in the process, isn't it? Like football talks about the, the grind, process of trying grind. to build, of trying to develop, of trying to get things together and to move forward. And I don't pretend at all that it's easy, this division. I mean, every week we say how much of a muchness is the bottom end of the Premier League? It really is. And it's nothing to say that Leeds couldn't have been in the position that Villa are in or Crystal Palace. Nothing to say that Palace or, or others couldn't have been down um, where Leeds are at the moment. Um, the standard the standard is so incredibly high, isn't it? Like, there are 14 teams to all intents and purposes who on any given day could take points off each other, if not more. Yeah, and I'm not even sure now that previously you had it in your head that the teams coming up were going to struggle from the championship. So you kind of need to finish above them and if you did, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd be fine and, and this, that and the other. I think the the attitude of first and foremost each season staying up is probably more pronounced than it's ever been because really, how many clubs can go into a season like this and confidently say, yeah, we'll be fine. You know, we'll, we'll be all right. We'll be no problem at all. I think I said on the previous podcast, Villa now look like they're out of it, you know, on 34 points. I don't think they're going to get sucked in. But that means from 12th down, it's still pretty much open. So any of those sides who've come into the season saying, oh, we'll just have a nice steady year and then maybe next year we'll kick on, you know, are suddenly thinking about relegation. I mean, there was, there was chanting against Rodgers um, after Leicester's last game, the defeat at, at Southampton. Big pressure on David Moyes, Bournemouth back at the bottom of the league. You know, and O'Neill has sort of, uh, sort of kept it afloat from time to time with the odd result here and there, but it's still 21 points from 25 games for them and, and serious, serious trouble. So yeah, you know, it, it these are these are kind of different times, and I think that's why when it's like this, it's kind of nice to go back and revisit the revisit the points where everything seemed possible. Do you know who else liked that Luke Ailing goal? Curtis Stigers. Did he really? Uh, it oh. was my. I ended up weirdly interacting with him on on Twitter. I mean, a, you might want to explain who Curtis Stigers is for anybody <laughs> under a certain age. Well, he's he's still touring now. He's very. He's a successful musician. He does more like jazz stuff now. Yeah. But in the early nineties, he was like a mum's favourite. Yeah. Long hair. Um, I wonder why was his his big hit and yeah. um, probably not one for the FIFA generation. Probably, probably <laughs> did you, not. Did the FIFA generation listen to this? But when uh, when Ailing got his got his hair out for some reason, I, I tweeted something about Curtis Stigers and he replied to it. Oh, and, um, and then uh, I had to explain to him why I was talking about Curtis Stigers with the celebration, and he described it as an insane goal. And to this day, me and Curtis follow each other on Twitter. Uh. <laughs> I'm hoping we'll uh, maybe go on holiday. Caravan somewhere, you know, be nice. <laughs> Maybe Luke can come too, just to just to complete it. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven US based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.
Back to reality now and back to Ellen Road on Saturday, Phil, for Brighton. The arrival of, of, of Brighton, who've kicked on since Potter has gone and uh, look like a rather handy side. In my bid to try and remain positive in this, what I described as a binfire of a season just a few minutes ago, I think we've got a better chance against expansive teams than teams that sit in a low block. Tell me I'm wrong. Yes, well, I would have said that was generally the trend under Jesse Marsh however no longer managed by Jesse Marsh good team Brighton uh, and a good team built by Potter really um, De Serbi's been uh, to this point really good appointment for them and they they seemed absolutely dead set on having him didn't they of all the coaches out there they they were and they were insistent and determined that, that it was going to be De Serbi who replaced Potter when, when Potter went to Chelsea and I guess you would say you know that that is the that is the benefit of succession planning if you get it right, that you know what you want to do, you know who you're going to go for, you know how it's, or ideally you know how it's all going to fall into place. They seem to me like a side who have now pretty firmly established themselves Brighton. And I think they're probably in a position where, even though we've just been saying in part two about the number of sides who can get sucked in, I think they'll be feeling that they've got the kind of basis and foundation they need now to make sure that they don't, not necessarily... The, the kind of foundation to push on to being regulars in Europe or knocking on the door of the top four. I think that's still a long way away from them. But, you know, to be around about where they are at the moment, um, most years, which is kind of eighth, ninth, that sort of thing. I've tried over the past few days to work out how I feel about the Chelsea game, Leeds defeat at Chelsea. And I'm sort of somewhere in the middle. I think I'm still like the tweet I put out afterwards, which said Leeds could have had something from that. I'm not really sure if they deserve something from that. Chelsea weren't great. Chelsea probably just about did enough. I think what's encouraging me more than anything, and I get that at Chelsea there were problems down the left-hand side, and that was in part due to the system that, that Potter played and, and the attempt to overload on an inhaling section of the field. But I think defensively it does feel like it's getting tighter, or it has felt like it's got a little bit tighter over the past three games. And that seems to me the basis that Gracia wants to start from. That feeling of security in the Premier League feels a little bit misleading though, because I feel like we were there for one season. If you look within the last couple of years, you'd say West Ham and Leicester were two teams that you'd go out. Well, even if they have an off year, they're going to be fairly safe. They'll be they'll be fine. And Wolves as well have been obviously dragged in a bit this this year. It can go wrong quite quickly, can't it? So not this year for Brighton, clearly. They've got enough they've got enough on the board already to stay up. But I feel like you're not actually secure until you're until you're really within I, the top I, seven or eight. I feel a little bit though with Brighton that the loss of security would probably have to come in tandem with a weakening in their ownership structure, which just seems so tight and and safe as as houses. I think if you start to pick through the teams at the the bottom of the table, you know West Ham as an example has been friction between their board and the crowd for a long, long time, and questions about how I know they had um, investment from um, Czech businessmen, but how much money they have, whether they have enough um, to to continue competing properly, same sort of questions. At Leicester, there are people who feel that the running of Forest is somewhat a little bit off the wall from time to time, although I think they'll be pretty happy with where they are at the moment. And clearly, we also have the, the issue of, of what's going on in, in China and, and the pressure on, on Fosin. I think with Brighton and Tony Bloom, there does feel like there's more security with that, which is not to say that it'll last forever. And you're absolutely right. It's amazing how quickly things do kind of drop to bits, but they feel as if they've got it right on enough fronts to have a good sustained spell now. On that, Phil, then. What do you think Brighton have got right that Leeds United could learn from? It's a very, very good question. For starters, 
Brighton have, have got themselves into position where new stadium and new training ground has completely revamped their uh, attractiveness to players coming in. I think their recruitment has been particularly good and particularly successful. And you can see that from the number of players who come in for, you could say, modest fees or kind of sensible fees and are sold for big money. You know, Trossard to Arsenal being another example. Caicedo probably the next one to go. And I think they have this really good thing, Brighton, where they don't panic when players do go. They kind of know what they're going to do with the money and what they do with the money seems to work. It's not that they want to get bullied into it so they didn't um, let Ben White come to Leeds and that's some of where Leeds were trying to get him. They didn't buckle with Casado either even though they'd, um, you know, they, they were quite willing to trade Trossard. But I think when it comes to Casado and, and probably the realisation that he's not going to back off now, you know, he probably is going to try and push for this again presumably in, in the next window. I think their attitude will be maximise the income and go again, find somebody else, find somebody else who can who can fit. I think everything's kind of worked for them in the same way. I mean, they had a very good manager in Potter as well, but also they've managed to lose Potter without losing their impetus and um, without dropping to bits, without the whole thing going wrong. And, and as I said earlier, that, that implies good succession planning. A natural progression of the style of play as we obviously had from Bielsa into Marsh. Absolutely that, yes. To the game itself then, Phil, how do you expect this one to um, to pan out? Well, I'll be at Grassi's press conference in about uh, two hours' time now. We will obviously ask him about Rodrigo and Sinistera. He will obviously not tell us very much, um, as is going to be his style. But Rodrigo is pretty close and was definitely hoping to be back on this side of the international break, was crossing his fingers that it would be Brighton this weekend rather than Wolves next weekend. We've said a few times that they've missed Rodrigo and I got our data guys to have a look at the the numbers for him this season. It's been his best season at Leeds, without a doubt. And actually, I think it was probably one of the boxes that Marsh was able to tick was that Rodrigo did find some proper form under him. And and that, that I think, on Marsh's part was a concerted effort to make Rodrigo feel valued and, and everything else. But Rodrigo's shots on goal, you know, the volume of them is on a par with Haaland behind only three other players with the you know comparative number of minutes. You're talking um, Nunes and, um, and Jesus, Mitrovic. His XG overperforming it by quite a distance, 10 goals as opposed to the six that he'd be expected to score. And also four chances in the six-yard box, four goals has been really clinical and has, I think, has shown quite a lot of leadership in his performances and has also looked good. And I think for a team who aren't scoring many at the moment and who need goals... He's got to be part of the answer. I get that Sinistera has looked a threat as well, but Sinistera has also struggled to stay fit for a lot of this season. I keep forgetting about Sinistera because well, that, oh, that's so, why. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Is yeah. there a chance that Grassi is going to be a good fit for Rodrigo? Because it feels like the pressing has become a bit more measured under under him, yeah. and you know he's never looked quite comfortable doing that side of the game. And maybe you know as he's now into his early thirties, it's not going to help him to to try and continue doing that. So is this going to play into his hands or is this going to look really stupid at the end of the season when he's not scored any more goals? Well, he's just turned 32. So yeah, no, he is He is starting to get into the latter stages now. Uh, he, he never felt to me, never looked to me like somebody who loved the kind of out-and-out aggressive press particularly. And in the in the Marsh system, and he actually made this kind of work for him, but he was looking, because of the way Leeds were playing, he was looking for those balls from central areas through that, that let him run onto it. I think in Grassi's system using the wings more, if the service is decent, you can probably expect Rodrigo to get on 
more and more chances in the middle, um, cutbacks, crosses, that sort of thing. And because of his finishing this season, I think you can you can count on him more than anybody else at the moment to take them as well. Sinistera, I think, quite clearly from his time in Holland, has goals in him and assists and everything else. But he needs to be fit and he needs to be playing regularly. And I think what happened to him at Old Trafford limping off after a few minutes kind of summed up the way it's been for him this season that he just can't quite get going. What do you do in midfield in this one? Do you go Rocker Adams McKenney and maybe sacrifice a little bit of the attacking threat, try and dominate midfield, or do you maybe go for the two up top? I think you probably have to be realistic about how well Brighton are playing and how dangerous they're going to be and and the levels of confidence in their team. I think Gracia will be wary of being overly negative. I mean, he's clearly not afraid or or concerned about making the team tight and compact and, and everything else and clearly doesn't feel the urge to be out and out attacking just because he needs to impress the crowd or whatever else. He's evidently following his own strategy and his, his own ideas. I can definitely see the call for Rocky and Adams as a, a two McKinney in front of them. I'm not totally convinced about how that would work as a three across the middle, which you know um, Gracia hasn't used yet. They, they tend to drop into a three when they're out of possession to provide a bit more of a, a bit more of a block there. And I don't know how well that would work on the ball, but I can definitely see the argument for playing McKenney further forward. I thought actually at Fulham, he was decent. You know, I thought his movement and everything else, you could see in that how he would open teams up, how he would cause defences a problem. But we are now getting to the point of the season where team selection has got to be right. It's got to work. Results have got to start coming because the games are counting down now. Is this a game Leeds United should be targeting to win? Obviously, we want to win every game. Do we think that this is a good opportunity to get three points or would a point be good in your eyes here? Point would be pretty good. I think it's a game that they should be looking to take something from. Absolutely. Brighton, without question, had the better of the game down at the Amex, although it was one of those weird matches where if Sinistera doesn't safe it wide from about three inches out, then Leeds probably win that, even though they were, you know, they were quite heavily dominated for, for a lot of it. I don't think anything about this season says to you that you look at this and go, yeah, Leeds should win this. But I think Brighton at home is a game where you would you would fancy yourself to get a result. Are you uh, ignoring the fact that Leeds have always got one in them? Oh, <laughs> for my I see. No, well, this, I will pass this baton to no, my left. This, this doesn't fall under the bracket of... Oh, God. is this not one of them? <laughs> I mean, I really should honestly... How, I should be... Um, how good do the Brighton need to be? Would they need to be like top four before that? I need to be one? sequestered to uh, football cliches for the adjudication Maybe you panel. you need to make a T-shirt. Um, along those lines see if it'll sell I just have always got one in them I mean Brighton are obviously they're eighth in the table at the minute yes um, riding high they've got games in hand on the teams above them which could put them into Europa League so you're saying we might position. have one in us no it just doesn't feel like the sort of fixture that, that has the magnitude they don't have the prestige yeah no I mean, that, that's, that's been unfair to Brighton who are a very good side but uh, they feel they feel like new football you know, like mm. their football it's, it's, team. Not a, it's not a fixture that gets lost in the concept of the big six is it that's what I mean uh, yeah, yes yeah, yeah. Although, personally... Thank, bit, you, I, thank I, you for digging me out of I, that I, hole, I shouldn't, I shouldn't really say this because we have a lot of Tottenham fans in our office, but I do feel like it should maybe be trimmed down to the big five right. um, at some stage, unless Tottenham actually start to, to do something as opposed to just promise the earth. Well, I was going to say, yeah, their, their reputation as big six is kind of predicated on the stadium as much as anything, isn't it? Because if they were still in White Hart Lane... Partly, partly that, partly the fact that under Pochettino they went close to the title and obviously reached the Champions League final and became much more competitive in that field than, than they had been previously. But I think every season, 
there was a great um, cartoon done by David Squires in The Guardian, who I think is probably probably the world's best cartoonist, and he's not even paying me to say that. But he, he was doing a pre-season piece, so, you know, how is this season going to go? They're talking about who is going to win the title, and someone just throws in this thing, what about Spurs? To which there are millions of people behind just crying with laughter, you know, because you just... <laughs> Start of each season, you think it's not going to be them, is it? No matter how well the squad's built or anything else, it's, it's going to be somebody else. But good, you know, good side, big stadium potential, um, everything else. But I think what you're trying to say is that Brighton don't fall into that bracket visually, do they? Yeah, no. They're, they're a team that happens to be having a good season. Um, oh, they're a good team, and yeah. they've been a good team for a while. Yeah, very, yeah. not very much. So and I don't, yes, I don't want to sound like I'm talking them down. It just doesn't have that. That feeling about it, like this ain't a blip for them. Oh, a blip's wrong word. This is not flashing the pan. At yeah, and, it, and it's not one of those where you go, bloody hell, that's going to be a big game. You know, when you look at the calendar at the start of the season, the fixtures. So I look at this and and I see, you know, a team that we hopefully can get out there and get after in some capacity because God, we need to. Yeah, there are undoubtedly bigger games down the road, but I think we've both kind of agreed on this that. If you spend too long saying, now nah, there are other games that are more important, suddenly it's May and you've been relegated. Yeah, you've run, uh, you run out of games. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it really is starting to hit um, hit crunch time. And with where Leeds are in the table at the moment, 22 points, given how tight the table is, I think you might need another 14, 15 to stay up, something like that. Well, if you get your, because uh, we always joke on our show, don't we, about Brighton, we're always uh, allocated their regulation nine wins from the Premier League. They seem to get nine every season under... <laughs> under Potter until they sort of kicked on a little bit um, last year and this year but another four wins would take us to let's do the math that would be 34 points plus chucking a few draws we're getting to that time of the season where the calculators are coming out aren't they yeah. trying to work out what it's going to take to stay up and I, and I keep reminding myself actually I've found myself far more relaxed and at peace with this whole thing recently because I've kind of accepted I think on an emotional level it's going to go to the wire because it's so tight in there. You yeah. know, hopefully we won't get cut adrift at any point here. Hopefully we just stay in the fight long enough to take it as late as possible and we just need to be the fourth worst team in the division at least. The thing is, a win against Brighton, which I know isn't, it isn't particularly likely looking at the form, but it pulls in so many other teams, doesn't yeah. it? it? It makes us within striking distance of people like Palace who... Not long ago, you'd have said we're pretty much safe this season, but and we have them to come to Ellen Road. Yeah. Exactly, like game, you can look at games like that and, and then think, well, actually, we can we can kind of flip some of these teams in a, in a little while and maybe get ahead of them. Yeah, and, well, a win is huge in it in the Premier League. I was wanting to do a comparison with the table last season, but it's actually impossible because I've, I'd forgotten how many games were cancelled due to COVID. So at one stage, you had Man United who played twenty five games, and you had Burnley who'd played twenty one. So Burnley were bottom with fourteen points, but they had them. Um, they had a lot of games in hand. You're right about a couple of good results changing the face of the table. I think what you tend to find, though, is that if you're this far into the season, having not shown signs of really delivering that, it doesn't tend to just happen. Um, so I agree with you. It's going to be it's going to be a proper scrap. It's probably going to be a narrow escape if indeed it is a, an escape. But I don't think it'll only be Leeds who are saying that. And looking at the fixtures between sort of now and just the other side of Easter, there are some games in there where. Perfectly capable of getting points. You could say that of most Premier League fixtures. I was saying there's, there's at least 14 teams in there. You think, well, we could on any given day get something from this game, but equally we might get nothing. Such are the, the fine margins in, in this league. That, that's one of the things I think I've I found hardest to kind of get my head around, but I feel like I have now in that the Premier League is so, it's so marginal in who falls which side of the line. I'm not um, putting my mortgage on Arsenal away, I have to say, when uh, looking through that, that, that fixture in the middle of the fixture list, that's one of those where I'm... Um, 
fully expecting to travel down to London, come back, write about a defeat and write about bigger games in the future to come and bigger games behind as well. Wolves, very, very important, obviously, but you, you cannot help but look at Forest and Palace back-to-back at home. One on April the 4th, one on April the 8th. Very, very tight um, together. I mean, six points from those make a huge difference to the table. Well, think about think about what three points on Saturday would do to going into those fixtures with just a little bit. Not There's not going to be any breathing space at this stage of the season, but to get those additional three points, it's, it's just huge, isn't it? I think what Leeds probably need is a win that comes out with the fixtures that you would expect them to win. So beating Southampton was essential and happened but if you're not beating Southampton, who are you beating? I think is, is kind of the story of, of this season. Forest, Palace, other ones where you've got to compete, you've got to take something from. But I think the sort of thing that can really give you a shot in the arm is Brighton turning up at Ellen Road and you turning them over because they are a good team and it does no harm ever to beat good sides. I'm not quite sure what happened to me, but I was looking at the fixtures the other day and I started feeling weirdly optimistic about it. Yeah, that, that's where I am, yeah. <laughs> I think I looked at the remaining ones and I thought, Arsenal away, Man City at home, all right. Fine. Probably not. But then ones that... You would think at the start of the season, like Liverpool at home, Spurs at home, Newcastle at home, given the start they had. But they're all they're all having or have had wobbles and have shown certain fairly fairly significant weaknesses at points this season. You think, well, why not? Like, why not win one of these just for a, just for a little treat? Does it does it not kind of make the point that if you go down, that you pretty much deserve to go down? Really, oh, don't you? You yeah. always deserve to go down if you go down. I think I don't. Yeah. I think the the league table is is a big enough data set, isn't it, that you've always, yeah. got to, you've always got to get to the end of it and shrug and go, well, it's because we were crap. <laughs> That's how it was, yeah. yeah. Because suddenly, actually, when you look through it, there are a lot of games to go. There are a huge number of games. Um, and, and the Liverpool game is third home game back-to-back. So, you know, again, possibly an opportunity, although they do seem to be picking up. I think the interesting thing with Tottenham on the last weekend of the season is that already the talk is starting to swirl around Conte. What are they going to do with him? Is he going to go? Are they going to be looking very, very transitional at that point. Have the um, wheels started to come off. Yeah, in other yeah, words. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you you never know with that. And and of course, you know, West Ham the away the weekend before could be absolutely fun in games that. Yeah, do you know what it is? I think it's just it's a reminder that we shouldn't give up hope. I think when you see when Leeds lose, there is that kind of that's us done. It's over. We're going down. And I understand it's just people kind of externalising their worst fears and all that, but it's not over, it's not done, we're not of down. it's not. No, no, absolutely. And I, I don't, sometimes I'm not even sure that the, the kind of demoralised mood is so much about, I mean, obviously it is based on the league table and the threat of relegation, but I think this season, and, and this season more than last season, is probably more to do with people trying to see where this is all going longer term, you know, what it's all adding up to. If you know, Even if Leeds stay up this season, I actually think they've got, you know, they've got good players in this squad. But can they build a good team? Like, can they build an effective team, a team who, who are going to compete more strongly in this division? And I think a season like this doesn't convince you of that, even though it can happen and it absolutely could happen. It's very hard to sit here now and say, yeah, but if we stay up next season, we'll be fine because of X. You know, you still have that kind of lingering thing about what's this all amounting to. Um, but then again, you've seen the example in the other direction, which is like West Ham seemed absolutely fine and this season they've really, really struggled and it goes back to that idea of fine margins, doesn't it? So the, the truth can be the same but in the opposite direction. You don't absolutely. have to. Just yeah. because we've been terrible this season doesn't mean that every season from now on means we're going to be terrible. And obviously West Ham as well are sticking it out with Moyes, you know, sticking it out with the manager as opposed to making a change and that might be a circumstance in which a change of manager would have helped them. But I understand why 
they feel like they owe Moyes a certain degree of loyalty and why they can't just say, look, it's it's kind of turned a little bit. So on your bike, despite everything that, that you've done previously, there's no fixed formula for this at all. It's, it's never been an exact science. It's not ever going to be an exact science. But Just score some goals and win some games. I, I'm going to put that one forward. Yeah, yeah, just stick the ball in the net. That's <laughs> that's what people keep saying on um, the, the match day chats that we have. There's always someone on there who says, just score more goals than them. <laughs> like, yeah, perfect team talk. Yeah, it? it almost feels like the, the tension around that is built up to a point where one goal could be a release, you know? Like, yeah. not necessarily a, a flood of goals, but just where they realise they can score and, and goals leads to wins. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not a difficult formula in that regard, is it? Ellen Road's great as well when the pressure's on. I, I remember when I, the first job I ever had was at the Press Association and there's a guy who still works there, Mark Walker, who I've been friends with ever since. And he's a Leeds fan, lives locally. And he used to say, Ellen Road is always fantastic when the heat's on. When you go down and there's things going on around the club or it's not quite happening on the pitch or whatever else, you know, the, the, the atmosphere can be terrific. And I, I've I've genuinely found that over the years. It's, it's the case. It was the case last season you know, against Norwich and, and other matches where you just needed it to, to happen. I always remember the, the game against Wolves last year, the one all draw where Rodrigo scored the, the injury time penalty. And that huge wackle going up with 20 minutes to go is a 1-0 down. And you just thought, like, it's the right time for this, the right place for it. And that's that's kind of how it goes. And, it's, you know, it's like the Southampton game. There's part of you secretly loves a oh, game yeah. like that because there's so yeah. much on it. You and know? I'll, and, I'll wake up on Saturday morning feeling sick the prospect of what's to come but I God I can't wait as yeah. well and it, it and even though part of you loves it if it goes wrong you instantly hate it at the end of the game you know and that's that's football but there's something to be said for games with big ante high stakes and there's less to be said for games that have nothing riding on them it's just that when when the heat's on and the pressure's on, sometimes you think, God, it would be nice to have a run with nothing matters. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if, that, if that's what happens next season, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, except then we'll all be bored, won't we? You know, come March, April time, be like, oh, there we go, yeah. <laughs> well, shall we do it all again on Monday then when we've got another uh, yes. bit of data for the data set and we'll see where leads are, uh, see where leads are in the table after the weekend shake-up. Uh, back on Monday, you and I, Phil, we'll speak to you then. The Phil Hay Show. 